in so many settings, it's not aligned. The incentives aren't aligned. The workflow isn't aligned. Everybody's serving slightly different masters with slightly different motivating goals, right? Uh, we keep trying to pretend that A, we've got a, an actual healthcare system rather than a collection of fragmentary parts. Here at Point Health, we are focused on making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford. As we launched Point Health, we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we shared what we learned during the process of building a digital healthcare company with the rest of the world? So we started this lovely podcast where we get advice from some of the best minds in healthcare and technology about how we can accomplish our vision of making healthcare easy to find, understand, and easier to afford. For today's episode, I am joined by our producer, Brian King. And a new voice on the podcast, our Chief Legal Officer, Mark Camaro. Hello, Stephen. I am excited to be here and excited for the conversation. Happy to have Mark here. And just a note on Mark, uh, he's got 20 years of experience in corporate law, commercial law, all the law things. Uh, but more importantly, he is uh, when he's not dispensing legal wisdom, he's restoring classic cars, uh, playing gigs with his band, as you can often see with the guitars on the wall behind him uh, when we do Zoom calls. Um, or or nerding out about the Mandalorian, big Star Wars fan. So uh, Jan, yeah, if we happen to be if we happen to have any Star Wars fans, we can we can certainly go down a road there. Um, and today uh, we're going to talk about uh, why healthcare is so hard to find and understand as we speak with our guest Jan Oldenburg, who is principal at Participatory Health Consulting. So thanks for joining us, Jan. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, so a little bio on Jan. She's previously held roles with Ernst and Young. Aetna and Kaiser Permanente, a few small companies you may have heard of, uh, as well as founding roles in several consulting companies. Uh, Jan's a nationally recognized thought leader on consumer health information strategy, and she helps organizations create and implement strategies related to digital health technology and personal health engagement. She's written multiple books on participatory healthcare, healthcare transformation, and digital patient engagement. And Jan is on the board of the Society for Participatory Medicine and recently completed a two-year term as co-chair of the National Hymns Connect Health Committee. Jan's done a lot. So awesome to have Jan. Um, we've connected online in the past and, and done a few panels together and always, always enjoyed your perspective. So thanks again for joining us. So maybe to start, Jan, could you just tell um, our listeners and us a little bit about your background in healthcare and how it has shaped your perspective? Absolutely. Um, so in addition to the companies you named, um, I started out actually at Health Partners in Minneapolis. Uh, so my first two deeply formative experiences were at Integrated Delivery Systems, Health Partners and Kaiser Permanente. Um, and in those settings, I really under started to understand at least um, the deep ways in which uh, the needs of healthcare consumers are connected to the needs of the healthcare delivery system and how everything works better when there are shared and aligned incentives on both parts um, where convenience isn't just on one side or the other, but that workflows focus on making care, treatment, and even payment convenient for both parties um, to the transaction. So that's for the docs, it's for the staff, it's also for the consumers. Um, and that's one of the beauties of working in an integrated delivery system environment is that 
it's really clear that if something's convenient for patients but doesn't work for doctors, it's not going to get the uptake that it needs um, and vice versa. Um, so I've also, as you could tell from this, I've jumped around a lot or else I'm old, um, but um, I've also had experiences uh, in the um, provider space um, with a lot of my consulting being focused in the provider arena. I've worked with a lot of startups and I've also worked with um, the health plan side. So in those roles, I've gotten the opportunity to see healthcare from kind of all of its dimensions. Um, and that helps a great deal because when you start thinking about uh, systems and processes and technology, you need to think about the flow through. And for consumers in particular, a lot of the problems come uh, into play because of the piecemeal nature of healthcare. And they may have a great uh, transaction with their provider mm -hmm. that then gets hung up in the interaction with their insurer or vice versa. Um, so thinking about that holistic perspective, uh, especially from a standpoint of technology and workflow has really helped me in doing this work. I think that's a really good point. I was going to say, Jan, based on just your background and what you're talking about here, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, come out with a million dollar question right out of the gate. Um, why do you think it is so hard for patients to find uh, affordable, quality health care in the U.S.? Oh, so many things. And it is the million dollar <laughs> question, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, part of it is the fragmented nature of it. So in so many settings, it's not aligned. The incentives aren't aligned. The workflow isn't aligned. Everybody's serving slightly different masters with slightly different uh, motivating um, goals, right? Um, but the other part is that uh, we keep trying to pretend that A, we've got a, an actual healthcare system rather than a collection of fragmentary parts. Um, and B, um, that it's a rational marketplace. And, and my definition of a rational marketplace, and I'm by no means an economist, but it's one where you actually, your, your behavior as a consumer has some impact on the price you pay. And because in the healthcare system, uh, you know, there are all these intermediaries, whether it's the pharmacy benefits manager or your insurer or various subsidiary arrangements. You often don't know what the real price of something is. And even if you try to behave like a, a rational consumer, you often can't find information about the different prices, especially in the context of your insurance coverage. And you can't really compare prices. And even if you make what seems like the most rational decision, it actually doesn't over the long haul have much impact on how rates are set or what you'd pay the next time. Yep. True price transparency is really it's it's a cornerstone of just the basic economics of the healthcare system, right? You can't shop prices. You can't drive market demand. You can't do anything unless you actually know what you're paying for. So you're absolutely right. Fundamental historic economics just doesn't work. 
in, in, our, in our healthcare system. Well, and there's another component to it, I think, is, which is that if you think about, and, and if you've got an example that contradicts this, I'd love it because I haven't been able to come up with one. But if you think about any other consumer purchase, the more you pay, the higher the quality. And we have, you know, we expect that. That's a part of our understanding of how markets work and why you might choose to pay more for something because it's, it's going to be associated with a higher quality. Healthcare, that's not necessarily true. The price you pay isn't always going to get you the higher quality, but we haven't, we haven't taught people a, how to look at those trade-offs between cost and quality in healthcare, how to understand what quality really is. And we haven't given them a transparent marketplace about quality either. So they can't really tell what it costs and they can't really tell what value they're getting for what they're paying. So extraordinarily difficult under those circumstances to behave like a rational consumer. Absolutely. I, I just watched a piece earlier today on um, 60 Minutes about Sutter Health. I don't know if you saw saw that the whole thing. I did see that. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? Um, and, I, and it was really interesting, but it was saying that in Sacramento, you're paying more for a, a, the birth of a ba- healthy baby than in New York City. I mean, yes. h- how does that make any sense? And and there's no real tie there to, to quality. And they, they covered that in the segment. If you haven't watched it, it's, it's worth it. L- listen to it. But but yeah, it just blows my mind. And there, there's no connection. One thing I wanted to ask you, because I do think you have a unique perspective. So my wife's from, from the Bay Area, Sunnyvale, and she had Kaiser her whole life. I, I, I joke sometimes whenever we were in grad school in Philly, she got a prescription and she'd never been outside of Kaiser. And so she asked me, she's like, what do I do with this? She's like, what do, what, do I, what do I do with this like little piece of paper? And I was like, you go to the pharmacy and you get, she's like, oh, well, they just always do that for me, you know, in, in Kaiser, because it's an integrated system. How... Maybe could you just talk a bit about Kaiser? I know this is I'm a little off script here, but how how did how I see that as being a pretty good model, but it, it only works over there for now at least. They've got a few other states I know they've expanded to, but it really hasn't taken off. Maybe I'm just curious to get your perspective on why that's worked, but not everyone has access to something like that. Well, and I, I will I will actually note that while Kaiser is in I think eight states at this point, if you think about the ACA and the way that the accountable care organizations were set up and structured, I would argue that in many respects, they were modeled after Kaiser and attempted to get some of the same kinds of uh, shared incentives and uh, community goals embedded. Um, But, you know, Kaiser works in part because it really is aligned and aligned around the health of the member. So I worked for, at Kaiser for seven years, you know, and this may be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not off by far. I don't think there was a day when I went to work and I didn't hear a conversation that went something like this. Well, is this the highest and best use of our members' money? What would our members' decision be on this issue? is this really a meeting that needs 15 people or are we wasting some of our members' money? I mean, it was 
absolutely embedded in the culture that this was an organization that was set up and its goals aligned around those members and keeping them healthy. Wow. Now it doesn't always succeed, mind you, right? It's, it's got failure points, but that deeply embedded sense that every action is judged by that yardstick, I think makes a huge difference. Well, it's kind of like you said earlier, we don't have a healthcare system. We've got a bunch of little pieces, whereas Kaiser is, is in some ways more of a, of a, of a unified and integrated system. And um, there's not necessarily that, that combative nature between different groups. So yeah, I, I, I should say this is, we're not, this is not a Kaiser supported uh, podcast and we're, we, you know, we have no connection to them really, other than the fact that my wife used to be a member and you, you used to work there. But um, I certainly think there's some learnings we could take from that system. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that um, I was at Kaiser as it had to move from being an organization that essentially had one insurance plan, which it had had for 40 or 50 years, to an organization that needed to think about high deductible plans and cost transparency and uh, sharing costs with members and consumers. And that was part of my role. And let me just note that that was no easier for Kaiser to go through than for anybody else um, trying to figure this out. Yeah. Um, we've hit on some things that, that, that maybe are sending my mind to value-based care. Um, I've said this before on the podcast. I, I, I'm a fan. I, I recently did a program with, with Dr. Elizabeth Heisberg on, on this topic and, and absolutely love her and, and learned quite a bit. I know it's, it's been around for a while. She wrote the book with Michael Porter back in like 2001, and we're still trying to figure it out in 2020. But, but I wanted to ask you a question about value-based care. And I know you were on uh, Stacey Richter's podcast as well. I, I listened to that one and, and heard you talk about this a bit. So if, if we want to deliver high-value healthcare, um, you know, I, I think there are some basic things that need, need to be out there. And, and one of those is, is a digital tool to actually provide patients with the information they need to be able to find quality care, right? Imaging, labs, meds, whatever that may be. And at a fair price, if you think about what is value, right? You know, the change in positive outcomes over the cost that, that went into that cycle of care. Uh, I just, why doesn't it exist today? I know that's maybe a hard question, but why hasn't something come along that actually gives patients that information and allows them to shop for the care they need? We, we kind of have it in other places, right? Whether that's Airbnb mm -hmm. or Uber, or you, you name it. We just don't have it here. And I'm curious, what are the factors and forces that have, that have prevented that? Um, well, and I think there are a number of them. And one of them certainly is that uh, oftentimes there have been contracts in place that prohibited um, physicians and hospitals from revealing the terms of their contracts, even in service of individual patients. I can't tell you the price until I bill you is, I mean, it's the reason that happened, right? The, the rough equivalent of having a great meal in a restaurant and never getting the bill for it until three months later when the taste of the food and the experience is pretty much disappeared from your mind, right? It's um, like Mark we have in here who are right, writing those contracts, Mark. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm looking forward to the changes um, in the rules that ONC has just come out with so that Providers, as of hospitals at least, as of 1 1 2021, have to reveal the terms of all of their contracts and 
2022, it starts for health plans. So that's going to help a lot because that information has simply not been accessible to a third party who needed to come up with it. Um, I, I'd also suggest, and I'm going out on a limb here because it's not really my area of expertise, but I think that a lot of providers are hard pressed to actually know what things cost them. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out what their real cost for something is and whether and when they can discount it is much harder than just sort of going with what, well, what will the market bear? What can we get for it? So some of the incentives for them to get really efficient haven't been there. Uh, similarly, it's not entirely clear to me that uh, insurers are really incented to try to get the best prices for consumers because they get a portion of whatever that price is. Um, and, and one of the things that's actually most horrifying about the way this works right now is that uh, the people who consistently, the only people who get to charge the list price are the indigent and the people without insurance. So no wonder healthcare contributes, I think at last, um, the last figures I saw, were to 67% of bankruptcies in the United States. Hmm. And that's just tragic in our society at this moment in time. You hit on some good points there. Um, one that I, one that stuck out to me and we could talk about that, by the way, the medical loss ratios and insurers and how that, I mean, that stuff, when I learned that in, in classes, I just, I could not believe that was the case. I was trying to remember her name. There's a woman from Covenant Children's Hospital or Covenant Hospital. And I think she was up in Seattle and she was telling, she spoke to our class and she was amazing. And she was telling us that they actually set up in their system. I think it was when it might've been their EMR or just a separate system where a provider could see where they ranked among their peers. So they could actually see like on a knee replacement, you, you know, Dr. Oldenburg, this is how you rate in terms of what it costs you to deliver that care. And then this is what the Medicare rate is. And, and she actually even said there were some providers in their system that were able to deliver quality care consistently below the Medicare rate. Now that's not the norm. Obviously, you know, she was quick to say that, but that when, when provided with information and, and the providers actually are able to see that they change their, their decision-making sometimes. Right. Um, well, and, you know, providers are competitive humans. Yeah. You don't make it through med school without being competitive, right? Um, so I think that that's right. And frankly, the same thing is true when, when providers actually see how they're ranked in their patient skills um, on a curve with their um, non-identified peers. So, so, so Jen, I, I guess... You we're, we're talking about this and the bottom line is that I don't think patients really realize that they have significant purchasing power in, in healthcare. How do we, how do we educate them? And uh, you know, like a term that we like to use is how do you educate patients to vote with their feet uh, and go to the, the better facilities that provide more uh, efficient quality, affordable care. I just don't think people know this and, and or if they do, they don't care. How do we change that? I don't think it's that they don't care. I think this goes back to the concept of a rational marketplace. Mm -hmm. A, which are the best facilities? 
Um, can I really rely that one that's cheaper is high quality? And if I go to provider A versus provider B for that MRI, does it really make much difference once it flows through the insurance system and I'm paying either my deductible or what remains, right? And so, you know, we know that our approach to high deductibles have not actually worked to make people more responsible consumers because people just cut getting care. They don't necessarily go to less expensive providers. They just stop getting care, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? The truly necessary care, the truly necessary drugs go out the window along with perhaps somewhat more frivolous options. And so it has to do with the fact, I'd almost say that we've trained them into learned helplessness. Mm. And they don't see that those behaviors make a difference. Even the people who are trying to do uh, some cost transparency often have a really limited list of services. I know I had shoulder surgery two years ago and I tried to use um, a variety of, <laughs> of cost measures to figure out a, what my you know, options were about MRI and also you know, whether the price that I had been quoted for the surgery itself was reasonable in this area. Well, between the, well, which code is it I'm actually getting? Am I getting an MRI with or without contrast? How many views am I getting? How do I, first of all, tell which service I'm supposed to be comparing is one question. And the next question is, how do I put that into the mix with the way my insurance plan is working, with where I am in my deductible, and with the question about um, where, which one has the highest quality. And, and also, you know, I don't think we should discount the importance of having doctors have a view of your history and having a relationship between providers and patients. So, you know, treating care as if it's purely a commodity there are a few things that are, you know, MRIs are maybe a great example of something that's truly a commodity. Most of the services that involve a doctor, however, the relationship actually matters. And so by trying to pretend that people are just going to go to the most convenient and lowest cost provider misunderstands that having a relationship and trust with that doctor and a sense that they actually know all of the components of your history, that matters too. Really good and point. I don't know how you weigh it in, you right. know, trying to come up with a formula, but it strikes me that ignoring it ignores something fundamental about both the nature of what's happening and the consumer behavior behind it. Well, I think without information, we tend to just, I mean, my, most of my life, I go where my doctor tells me and I, I, and I don't, that's not to be bad. I mean, I trust my doctor, you know, I, I, 
I grew up with a pediatrician and I had a certain through my life, my doctors I've had, and I love my current doctor. And I, I tend to trust him or her to say, this is the best person. Um, and there's good things and there's bad things about that. But I think you're, I think you're what I'm, I guess where I'm getting is you're right. That the doctor plays a big role in this, duh, right. In healthcare. But, but, um, you, you can't ignore that because it's not a commodity. It's not, it's not, I'm not going to buy an eggs, you know, well, and often a doctor doesn't have information about to make a better referral, right? They often don't, they're lacking the same things. Yeah. They don't know for sure the quality of that doctor, except anecdotally. They don't yeah. know the pricing of that doctor, except anecdotally. And so they too are operating at a disadvantage in this mix. I think we're all dealing with a lack of transparency. It's not just price <laughs> transparency, it's it's quality, it's all of it. And, and we do... One of our upcoming episodes is going to be focused solely on quality, as we, we sp- speak with someone about that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really good point. I, I will say one thing about in, in my experience, I am I have a direct primary care doctor. I don't know if you're that familiar with that, but I, I joined about oh, I guess almost two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been one of the better experiences I've ever had because he actually has time to talk with me. One, uh, you know, we spent an hour together in the beginning, uh, and then and then since then. Uh, if I need help, I just send him a message and he's back to me or, you know, or one of his, one of his, his team is back to me in 10 minutes. Um, and, and, and the nice thing too, with this is because he deals with a lot of patients who have alternative kind of healthcare coverage setups, he actually does have some knowledge about who to refer me to. And so when I say, Hey, Dr. Larson, I need, you know, I, I need my, my wife needs to have see a dermatologist. Is there someone you recommend based on our healthcare, you know, coverage situation? He factors that in. So maybe that's a step in the right direction. Um, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that more people can have access to direct primary care, which I know has been an argument that, that's been made, but, but yeah, Dr. Larson at Euphoria Health in Austin, I'll give him a shout out, has really made a difference. What do you think about that, about direct primary care? How, how can we expand that model so more people have access to it? Yeah, I, I love the concept. Um, and part of it is all of these factors, right? About uh, it's somebody who knows me, somebody who is focused on my care, somebody who has built their schedule around having time for the patients in the practice. Um, It's also problematic because many direct primary care docs don't take insurance at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, or the cost of the direct primary care model isn't factored into your coverage. So it's another price on top of what you may already be paying, which is probably too much for your coverage. Um, and, and so it's hard to figure out, again, the trade-offs that come from that sense of responsiveness and familiarity, which matter, but which don't have an economic kind of dollar amount affixed to them. So thinking about that, you know, we need to start weighing into our economic models some factors that are not just price and quality. It's also these less tangible elements, but that may matter more to me, for example, than to my brother, who's a complete introvert and prefers not to talk uh, to, to his doctor, right? So it's a, it's, um, it, it's, not just being responsive to you know the individual by being transparent about it, but it's being responsive to the ways that individuals want to get care, 
get treatment, treatment and have interactions. So there's a, a dimension of personalizing mm -hmm. all of this that I think um, is hard to factor into uh, price and quality transparency models, but that nonetheless has an impact on the behaviors. And you can learn that, you can build AI that helps you understand what Jan is more likely to want versus Steven or Mark. Um, but very few folks are putting that into practice yet. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think there's hope. <laughs> I think, I think smart yeah. people smarter than me are, are figuring that out, and I, which I'm really happy about. Um, and I, and I like what you said, which I think, which gets back to maybe, I think where you spend a lot of your time around person-centered healthcare or, or you know, per personal health engagement. I know you, I, I, I saw you no longer like the term patient engagement, but, but um, <laughs> I, 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 I guess where I'm going is, um, patients are supposed to be the center of healthcare, right? Um, that, that's kind of the idea, but it seems like we've, we've moved away from that a little bit. And, and I think a lot of what, what we've said and talked about today is how do we move, move back towards that? Um, which I know is, is, has been a big, a big factor of, of your work. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a question there, but, I, but I'm with you. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting out of this, this, this conversation. Well, and, and one of the things I think that happens is that it's actually really relatively easy to design for the convenience of our staff and doctors. When we design processes, when we design systems, they're right there and we hear from them <laughs> if we screw up in our design for them. It, it's actually quite hard to design systems that um, work both for the person who's a deeply savvy healthcare consumer and wants more data and more information and is really in there with you being a partner, um, as well as the person who um, is less savvy or less involved or it's their first encounter with the healthcare system and they don't even know what to ask. So trying to think about how you build capabilities um, and tailor things so that it's easy as an interface or interaction if you're on the less savvy side, but you can dig in more deeply if that's what you want. Where the system, once it sees what behavior I'm most likely to go for, then offers up and anticipates my needs rather than my keep ha having to keep forcing it to go in the directions I want it and to offer me the information that's at the level that I'm ready for. That really reminds me of my favorite quote with respect to medicine. And, and here's my geeky Star Wars reference in that uh, we have Star Wars medicine, but a Flintstones healthcare system. <laughs> Perfect. Mm -hmm. I love that. And it's so sadly true. Um, uh, when it comes to the experience of patients you know, so much of the time. And, and you know, I, I have to put a pitch in for understanding the goals of the person, not just the goals of the system. I mean, you know, how many of our measures are based on, you know, for diabetics, what's their HA, A1C score? Well, 
they may not they may not care about the A1C score, but they may care about how it makes them feel. They may care about their ability to get to church every week, which only happens if their score is lower. They may care about their ability to play with their grandchildren or have stamina to continue to work or whatever for them the measure is. But because we tend to force our measures on them, they don't have a vested interest in them. They don't have a stake in that game, at least in the way we phrase it. It reminds me a lot of um, Dr. Teisberg's, she's a, a three C's model. And it essentially, it's about what, what does the patient care, care about? What, what um, I think it's ca capability, comfort, and calm. And if I got those wrong, she's going to be mad at me, but <laughs> I think it's capability, comfort, and calm. And it's basically like you just said, what does that patient want in terms of, is, is it picking up their grandchild? Uh, and after they've received care, are they now able to do that? And they weren't able to before. Are, are they? Are they? Are they in a better place from a from a from a financial comfort level than they were before? If you if you now they can pick up the grandkid, but they're going bankrupt. Did you really help them? Yeah, I, I love the model that she they've put together. Um, and and it, it it's trying to measure I think outcomes for patients that actually matter to them, like measuring yeah. outcomes that matter for that patient. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think I think the more kind of customized and contextualized for that patient, the better off we're going to be. Um, but it, and it's interesting because the context may change over time. Mm -hmm. So I'll never forget um, interviewing a dear friend of mine who um, had an episode of Guillain-Barr syndrome. And she's probably the most take charge human being I know. Uh, but in that moment, she was extraordinarily sick. And in you know, without realizing it, she was halfway to being paralyzed. So everything was an enormous effort. And at that point, her doctor said, well, do you want me to admit you to the hospital right now? Or, you know, because I think you're going to end up there. Or do you want to go home and make arrangements? Well, any other time she would say, let me make the decision about what my timing is. But actually at that moment, she needed a doctor who was somewhat more directive with her. Honestly, you're not going to be able to cope. Now, that's something it's extraordinarily hard for technology to respond to that in the moment. Humans, if they're good, can. So I think we need a combination of, you know, that proverbial high-tech and high-touch care. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you're speaking to the choir here. That, that's something that we've seen with our, with our uh, patient advocates when members call in more often than not, it's just having someone to give them comfort mm -hmm. and, and care and, and actually listen to them and understand the situation that they're in. And so when I go and look at all of our, you know, reviews that we receive more often than not, that's what they appreciate is that human. So mm -hmm. I think the more, the closer we can get to that, the, the better and the more that we can care for our patients, the better. So man, well, this has been a really good conversation. I know I, I looked down and we're already past 30 minutes and, and I think we could keep going for another 30, but <laughs> your time and, and everyone's we'll, we'll wrap it up here. I did want to ask um, if, you know, if, if anyone wants to get a hold of you or connect with you or uh, work with you in any way, how can they do that? And, and where would you send them? Yeah, a couple of options. Uh, I tweet actively at Jan Oldenburg. Uh, you can find me by email at jan at janoldenburg.com. 
I'm pretty consistent here. And my website is janoldenberg.com. So I'm not hard to find. Um, so yes, please reach out. I love conversations. Uh, I love to have these discussions and I always learn as much as I teach. So thank you. Awesome. Well, I got to say as a marketing person, you're very unbrand. You, you nailed it there. Jan Oldenberg. <laughs> I need, to, I need to get better at this. Um, awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us, Jan. And we, we really we really valued the conversation. And until next time, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks. My deep pleasure. Thank you. All right, Jan. Thank you. Appreciate it. That brings our episode to a close. Thanks to Jan for joining us to discuss our fragmented healthcare system, how we can encourage patients to exercise the power they possess, and why we need a more patient-centric approach to care. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and learned a thing or two from Jan. We're going to continue in this theme of finding quality, affordable healthcare for the next few episodes as we speak with experts on healthcare quality measurement and healthcare technology. Be sure to subscribe now so you get a heads up when future episodes drop. Thanks for listening.